With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is for, this is for, this is for, this is for all y'all. Uh, this is for, this is for, oh, this is for all y'all. Music is pain. Usually they say you get the rap. You heard me sing. I bring it back. Samples and tracks. Wear a lot of hats. Plan for attack. We shoot the vids. I bring out the cam. Let's book a show and please pay in advance, bro. I love this shit. Love this shit. My whole life. My whole life.
Bonsoir and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, mesdames and messieurs. It is fun day, <laughs> the 29th day of October in the year 2017, and you are now listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio. I'm your host, Sandra London of livinggrind.com, broadcasting for you live from the sunny beaches of Southern California. Playtime with Sandra Radio is available to you via Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, Digital Podcast, and Naked Girls Radio, a.k.a. New Groove and Rhythms at ngrmusic.com. Ah, happy pre-dawn holiday weekend, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I hope you liked that song at the top of the hour that was called This Is For by the artist known as Kyle Young. Uh, I uploaded a couple new songs that I enjoyed listening to earlier today, so I'm going to play a few of those, um, and then I was also going to share with everyone um, the top five horror books that I've read that I would love to see made into movies. Um, I have that list waiting right here. <laughs> I'll name those momentarily, so yeah, I was like, I could just list the movies that have scared me like crazy, but I'm like, no, because then... It'll just bring all that back. <laughs> I don't want to relive those. I, I know what those movies are, but movies are books, novels that I've enjoyed that are like suspense or thriller or horror uh, novels. Uh, yeah, some of those have remained with me ever since I read them. Some of these were books that I read like when I was about nine. Some were a bit uh, later in life, like when I was 11, 12, 13, 14. Yada, yada, on and on. Um, yeah, so I'll do. But uh, check out this next song. I will do. Let's go. Vampire Sips by Fly Hats. Off of the new King Felix album. There you go.
was striking gold on the dance floor, all oiled up. It started out as gas. Alas, her drink slipped, modestly drenching her see-through night on the town gown while she had held court in the Lux Lounge way up high. Roman is amused, but tries to avoid making this sudden, newfound pleasure known. Petra plays the fool, continuing her sway, her shimmy, her excitable thrusts, swings, and struts, leading the way. All atop six-inch steel wheels. The damn thing just won't quit. No, really. Whose divine theory was made into a plan of action here anyway? This endless procession of treadmill. As if this hot powerhouse needed any workout. Petra reels in Roman's furtive gaze and grins a mile wide. Oops. Petra mouths as she slowly turns her VIP goblet onto its underbelly, painting her purposefully too small negligee with deep scarlet spirits. There will be whistles galore. Meanwhile, Roman and Petra alike are all wrapped up in her velvet. Petra widens her eyes. Oops. Roman mouths back, swallowing hard. Squirming in seductive falsetto, Petra makes a few pathetic attempts to dry off. The elements notwithstanding, the spirits make tiny teardrops at the mountaintops of her ridiculously erect nipples. Magic! Petra shouts over the circus absorbed within them. Puffy to perky, all in one go. Petra smiles, leaning in as Roman draws near, all the better. Bravo, ma belle, Roman craves. Petra runs the back of her hand absentmindedly over the front of Roman's pants. Petra pipes up, Aha! Voila! She feels good inside. A host draws near. Mademoiselle? Petra reaches out for Roman, cupping his ass cheek from behind. No, no, thank you, it's fine. We'll, we'll be going. My ride's here, Petra volunteers, winking at the staff. Enter Johnny Otto. There he is. I am Johnny's pet, Petra chuckles, as Roman grips her hand tightly to keep up. Johnny is jar. Party of two and a half, Johnny intimates with reserved discretion as a temporary chattel claim assignment. Where do we tell? Roman begins. Don't you worry. Petra rubs Roman's knee gingerly. Johnny's got everything under control. Petra is suddenly overwhelmed. Petra lays her head atop Roman's khakis, creating a very hard and humid situation. Three, two, one. Johnny has arrived. Uh, uh, Roman stutters. Roman is a bit of a mess. A stowaway ejects smoothly from the door, proffering an assortment of complimentary tissue. Roman flusters about, moderately embarrassed. He looks to the east of himself. Wow. How did it know where I live? Roman continues to peer out of the window. Did you leave your light on? We can read, you know, 
touch her cautions gently. Oh, Roman sighs. Um, thanks? Roman bellows uncomfortably into the voice box, which separates the chattel from the operator. Much obliged, Johnny affirms solemnly. Mm. Now, where were we? Petra purrs distractedly, prodding her new favorite thing. 322 King's Court, Utopia, Swartzen Bridge, recalls Johnny. Petra rolls her semi-permanent autumn green eyes. Johnny is at a full stop. Roman is released upon exit. Petra's dismount, however, is delayed. She pauses a moment, but all are silent. Ugh! Johnny! Petra squeals for precisely 20 seconds. Let me go! Roman looks on in suspended disbelief. You, my pet, have not arrived at your... Petra interjects, fucking bullshit, Johnny! Petra gathers Roman's coat and lifts it up from her lap towards the auto lights. Throwing it over her nipple-length chocolatey mane, she slips her hands into Roman's sleeves. You have changed, Johnny reports. Johnny is ajar. Standing momentarily akimbo on the sidewalk, Roman and Petra soon advance onwards towards Roman's high-rise. Looking back, Petra tugs her left boob ever so slightly while pointedly winking her right eye. I will put you in my pocket. Running and jumping streets now, flooded with 
people One love you was speaking Bob Marley was teaching me Once they touch me Hearts of others They tell me I'm dumb And I'm loving it And I'm asking one question Why can't I make this music To give It's got me feeling motivated So you can call me anything But stupid Me God Me God Me go with hard Me lard Me guard Later my soul Got too much weight on my shoulders, weight on my shoulders, weight on my shoulders, weight on my shoulders. There's nothing I would rather do than spit a reggae to you. If you're feeling this, what you? If you're feeling this, what you? Then everybody put your hands in the air. 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 You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your hostess, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com. Alrighty, you just heard Vampire Sips by Sly Hat, and that was off of a new King Felix compilation CD um, that I found over on freemusicarchive.org. If you just search for King Felix, K-I-N-G, second word, Felix, F-E-L-I-X, you should see that album come up. Um, it's so cool so far. Um, I've heard a few songs on there and saved some of them. So that was the first one, first time played here this evening. Uh, after that, I heard Autonomous Booty, um, my Sandra London official audio erotica, uh, featuring yours truly, Sandra London of livinggrind.com. And you heard Hands in the Air by AJC. Uh, yeah, the call in number is 858. 858- 815 2333. Once again, 858 815 2333. And out of those top five novels uh, that I want to be like a movie, <laughs> I think some of these have been like television adaptations, but like, I don't know, a really big budget awesome film of any of these five would be awesome, awesome. So I don't know. I just ranked them from you know, between themselves for the top five. I'll give you three right now. <laughs> um, from the bottom uh, three in the five. All right, so number five, The Immortal by Christopher Pike. And that was written in 1993 uh, or published in 1993. Uh, Remember Me by Christopher Pike, um, published in 1989. And number three, My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews. And I've read so many film babies Andrews novels. Oh, my goodness. Awesome lady. Um, published in 1982. Alrighty. Uh, I will play. <laughs> Which one? Which one? How about? Why is it not ready? My bad. Um, <laughs> I'll play. Okay. That one should be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Natalie by Lisanne Pebbles, and that's also on the King Felix compilation. Mm-hmm. 
back. You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your hostess, Sandra London of livinggrind.com. Uh, you just heard Natalie by the Sand Pebbles on the King Felix compilation, and then Memory by Creo, C-R-E-O, and um, oh my God. sorry, I'm a little rusty today. Something Elated by Broke for Free. Okay, yeah. Alrighty, so the top two um, in ascending order. Uh, number two, A Spell for Chameleon. Um, this is for the novel, the top five that I would love to see in a big, major motion picture film. Spell for Chameleon by Piers Anthony, which was published in 1977. And number one, uh, if you follow me on Twitter at I'm Sandra London, I M S A N D R A L O N D O N, all one word, I'm Sandra London. Um, and you follow it a lot. You may have seen this before because there was someone who was asking anyone a general inquiry of which novels uh, that are like thriller, suspense, or horror that you would like to see uh, made into a major motion picture film. This was a while ago quite a while ago, but my answer was the number two, a Spell for Chameleon by Piers Anthony, but also number one, The Door to December by Dean Koontz. Um, it's one of my favorite thriller uh, novels of all time. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. Either read it or hear it, maybe, I don't know, an audiobook or something. But yeah, so those are my five. The Immortal, Christopher Pike, Remember Me, Christopher Pike, My Sweet Audrina, V.C. Andrews, uh, A Spell for Chameleon, Piers Anthony, and The Door of December by Dean Kuntz. Voila! Alrighty, I'll be right back with you. Up next, I'm going to play... A Second Devil by Toussaint Morisson. We call the number is 858-815-2333. Once again, 858-815-2333. We're going high, high, high in the heavens above. Working with fire, fire, fire from the While I was working sideways, rolling silverware, thinking what's my time okay. Before my thought could finish, my girl sent a text saying we should end it. Initially, didn't know what to feel. She said my plans to leave for California gave a question. I took a deep breath, took down my shield. Said best of luck with St. Paul, see you in the next one. Press on, and that's one last pack to pack. Cause once it's time to hit the road, there's no looking back. Music is my mistress, Wiley is the magic hat. Los Angeles is my spacecraft to crash. Just a waiter in a restaurant dreaming. Letting his mind wander while he's cleaning. Working with the means of a blind swordsman. I won't need to see the light to know I'm closing in.
So done. So done. So done. Can you stand still while your self-esteem says? Waiting the cold now for your future sake. There's no clean blade in making the clean break. So I pack no more than I need take. Because my demons have been calling out my name. And I've been drifting like a ghost for so many winter days. That the outside and the end is starting to feel the same. I'm banking on pennies from the sidewalk, cheap frame. Lack of morality, impulse, bad tippers. And a death trap with four wheels to get there. Never without those who click share and the kickstart for Wiley and I to even sit here. The world's a hard and sinner spinning out of spite. To get back the question on where to draw the finish line. So I close my eyes longer than I can afford it. I won't need to see it to know I'm moving toward it. Yeah. 
chão deixando o carimbo Teu verde lindo, teu verde Day by day, cause I have to 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Lewis Stevenson. Chapter 2, Search for Mr. Hyde. Recorded by Sandra London of livinggrind.com. That evening, Mr. Ederson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday when this meal was over, to sit close by the fire, a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighboring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he took up a candle and went into his business room. There he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope, on the 
envelope as Dr. Jekyll will and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holograph for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend the least assistance in the making of it. It provided not only that, in case of the decease of Henry Jekyll, MD, DCL, LLD, FRS, etc., all his possessions were to pass into the hands of his friend and benefactor, Edward Hyde but that in case of Dr. Jekyll's disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months, the said Edward Hyde should step into the said Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay and free from any burden or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore. It offended him, both as a lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life, to whom the fanciful was the immodest. And hitherto, it was his ignorance of Mr. Hyde that had swelled his indignation. Now, by a sudden turn, it was his knowledge. It was already bad enough when the name was but a name of which he could learn no more. It was worse when it began to be clothed upon with detestable attributes and out of the shifting, insubstantial mists that had so long baffled his eye, there leaped up the sudden, definite presentment of a fiend. I thought it was madness, he said, as he replaced the obnoxious paper in the face, and now I began to fear it is disgrace. With that, he blew out his candle, put on a great coat, and set forth in the direction of Cavendish Square that citadel of medicine, where his friend, the great Dr. Lanyon, had his house and received his crowding patients. If anyone knows, it will be Lanyon, he had thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining room where Dr. Lanyon sat alone over his wine. This was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman with a shock of hair, prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. At sight of Mr. Utterson, he sprang up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The geniality, as was the way of the man, was somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling. For these two were old friends, old maids, both at school and college, both through both thorough respecters of themselves and of each other, and what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up to the subject which so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. I suppose, Lanyon, said he, you and I must be the two oldest friends at Henry Jekyll's. I wish the friends were younger, chuckled Dr. Lanyon, but I suppose we are. And what is that? I see no to live of now. Indeed, said Utterson. I thought you had a bond of common interest. We had, was the reply, but it is more than ten years since Henry, Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong, wrong in mind, and though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sake's sake, as they say, I see, and I have seen, devilish little of the, of the man, such unscientific boulder dash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple, 
whatever strange Damon and Perseus. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Ederson. They have only they only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passions, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, it is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend <clears throat> a few seconds to recover his composure, and then approached the question he had come to put. Did you ever come across the protégés, he's One hide, he asked. Hide, repeated Lannan. No, never heard of him since my time. That was the amount of information that the lawyer carried back with him to the great dark bed on which he tossed to and fro until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little, little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock stuck on the bells of the, mor of the church that was so conveniently near to Mr. Ederson's dwelling and still he was digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone, but now his imagination also was engaged, or rather enslaved. And as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night and the curtained morning, Mr. Enfield's tale went by before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures. He would be aware of the great field of lamps of a nocturnal city, then of a figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctors, and then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed on regardless of her screams. Or else he would see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling at his dreams, and the door of that room would be opened, the curtains of the bed plucked apart, the sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at that dead hour he must rise and do its bidding. The figure in these two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, it was but to see it glide more stealthily through sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly and still the more swiftly, even to dizziness, through wider labyrinths of lamp-lighted city at every street corner, crush a child and leave her screaming. And still the figure had no face by which he might know it. Even in his dreams, it had no face, or one that baffled him and melted before his eyes. And thus it was that there, that there sprang up and grew apace in the lawyer's mind, a singularly strong, almost an inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde, if he could but once set eyes on him. He thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it which you please, and even for the startling clause of the will. At least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was without bowels of mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the unimpressionable Enfield, the spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the door in the by street of shops. In the morning before office hours, at noon when business was plenty and at times scarce, at night under the face of the fogged city moon, by all lights and at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was to be found on his chosen post. If he be Mr. Hyde, he had thought, 
I should be Mr. Sleek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine, dry night, frost in the air. The streets were as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. By 10 o'clock, when the shops were closed, the by street was very solitary, and in spite of the low growl of London from all around, very silent. Small sounds carried far. Domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway, and the rumor of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time. Mr. Utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person, while he was still a great way off, suddenly spring out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet his attention had never been before so sharply and decisively arrested, and it was with a strong, superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very, very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at that distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came, he drew a key from his pocket, like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrank back with a hissing intake of the breath, but his fear was only momentary. And though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That's my name. What do you want? I see you are going in, returned the lawyer. I am an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Edison of Gaunt Street. You must have heard of my name and meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me. You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is from home, replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. And then suddenly, but still without looking up, how did you know me? He asked. On your side, said Mr. Utterson, will you do me a favor? With pleasure, replied the other. What shall it be? Will you let me see your face? asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. Now I shall know you again, said Mr. Utterson. It may be useful. Yes, returned Mr. Hyde. It is as well, isn't it? And apropos, you should have my address and he gave a number of a street in Soho. Good God, thought Mr. Utterson. Can he, too, have been thinking of the booze? But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted an acknowledgment of the address. And now, said the other, how did you know me? By description, was the reply. Whose description? We have common friends said Mr. Utterson, 
common friends, echoed Mr. Hyde, a little hoarsely. Who are they? Jekyll, for instance, said the lawyer. He never told you, cried Mr. Hyde with a flush of anger. I did not think you would have lied. Come, said Mr. Ederson, that is not speaking language. The other smiled aloud into a savage laugh, and the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disquietude. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Ederson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There's something more, if I could find a name for it. God bless me, the man seems wholly human. Something chocolate-drick, shall we say? Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think, for... Oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Round the corner from the by street, there was a square of ancient, handsome houses, now for the most part decayed from their high estate, and let in flats and chambers to all sorts and conditions of men, map engravers, architects shady lawyers, and the agents of obscure enterprises. One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire. And at the door of this, which wore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well-dressed elderly servant opened the door. Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole? asked the lawyer. I will see, Mr. Utterson, said Poole, admitting the visitor, as he spoke into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall, paved with flags, warmed after the fashion of a country house, by a bright, open fire, and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. Will you wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining room? Here, thank you, said the lawyer and he drew near and leaned on the tall fender. This hall, in which he was now left alone, was the pet fancy of his friend the doctor's, and Utterson himself was wont to speak of it as the pleasantest room in London. But tonight there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy on his memory. He felt, what was, ri- what was rare with him, a nausea and distaste of life, and in the gloom of his spirits, he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight on the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of the shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his release when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll was gone out.
I saw Mr. Hines go in by the old dissecting room, Paul, he said. Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home? Quite right, Mr. Utterson, sir, replied the servant. Mr. Hyde has a key. Your master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Paul, resumed the other, musingly. Yes, sir, he does indeed, said, said Paul. We have all orders to obey him. I, I do not think I ever met Mr. Hoyt, said, asked Mr. Uh, asked Ellison. Oh dear, no, sir. He never dines here, replied the butler. Indeed, we see very little of him on this side of the house. We, he mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. Well, good night, Paul. Good night, Mr. Utterson. And the lawyer set out homeward with a very heavy heart. Poor Harry Jekyll, he thought. My mind misgives me. He is in deep waters. He was wild when he was young. A long while ago, to be sure. But in the law of God, there's no statute of limitations. I must be that the ghost of some old sin, the cancer of some concealed disgrace, punishment coming, Pedro Claudio, years after memory is forgotten and self-love condoned fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thoughts, brooded a while on his own past, groping in all the corners of memory, least by chance some jack-in-the-box of an old iniquity should leap to light there. His past was fairly blameless. Few men could read the rolls of their life with less apprehension. Yet he was humbled to the dust by the many Ill, Ill things he had done, and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by the many he had come so near to doing yet avoided. And then by a return on his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. This master Hyde, if he was studied, thought he, must have secrets of his own, black secrets by the look of them, secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are, it turns me cold to think of this creature stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry, we're awakening, and the danger of it. For if this Hyde suspects the existence of the wheel, he may grow impatient to inherit. I, I must put my shoulders to the wheel. If Jekyll will, but let me, he added. If Jekyll will only let me. For once more, he saw before his mind's eye as clear as transparency, the strange clauses of the will. The end of chapter two of Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, recorded by Sandra Lemons. Baby, I'm about to blow up. I just thought you should know.
Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your host, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com. You just heard Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Chapter 2, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, read aloud, audio style. <laughs> but yours truly, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com, and just after that, you heard Blown Up by Stefan Soleil. Alrighty, to finish out this evening, I will play by request uh, my short form erotica, Oratio Oblica, Indirect Speech, written by yours truly, Sandra London of livinggrind.com, and performed aloud for yours truly, or for you all, my dear grinders. <sighs> Hiya, voila, here you are, Oratio Oblica, Indirect Speech. Yesterday morning, or perhaps last night, Celeste will wake up dead. It will take quite some time before she will take note of this. Celeste will have just ventured out the evening before with her best friend forever, Ashlyn Jameson, to seek out a new restaurant and bar, Le Colisée. Dave will not appear too excited about this, and Celeste will worry that he may be upset by the time upon which she returns especially if she should so happen to have spent far too much time catching up with her longtime friend, with whom she will have not seen in a little over an academic year. Ashlyn has been on a study abroad exchange of some sort, premised upon classical literature and ancient mythology, or something like this. Ashlyn's long-winded, bubbly digests are quite familiar to all. In fact, they register quite regularly 
as a CC all expose to her steady circulation of friends, as well as the many more recent admirers she will have gathered along the way. Mykonos, Athens, Barcelona, Catalonia, as Ashlyn has never failed to educate her fellow feathered ilk. All this, and even more still, and yet always all the best parts divulged solely for Celeste's pervy perusal and private consumption. And so now, Celeste will be able to unearth even more, always more, about her darling girlfriend's heady endeavors and their lusty conclusion. Uh, for example, Tomas, the hunky, highly adroit Catalonian, with whom Ashley has only just memorialized a great escape to Venezia. A sweet but sordid escapade, culminating with tentative, then turbulent, finger-filled dalliances to the tune of the silent symphony on the muddy waters of a midnight gondola ride. A tasty bon appétit, indeed, for El Señor, fanned beneath her popularly peasant skirt, and how Ashlyn would squirm, reliving how she would try her best to ignore the rocking and swaying of that small, floating apparatus so many millions of light years away from the crunchy granola of her more usual endives. Like Hendry's Beach off the Pacific coast, or a stolen moment of picnicking a la va-va-voom on checkered gingham blankets, or were they Freddy's burgers napkins? Ashley will have developed a learned disdain for those comparatively milder throes of passion, long gone and tossed out to sea amid the persistent flow of tides along the edges of humanity. Celeste is more than willing to subsume this all the while, emptying recollections of fuzzy, fading remnants of her own time's past, like losing her bon genre regimes to the Pacific coast in a newly naked embrace her soaked front pockets bearing down, impeding resistance, reuniting with Donnie's t-shirt. They're having become saddled with quarters, readied for a midnight sack of colorless bra and panty laundry and Donnie's short sleeves. All this, and salute to the elements, yet little more than a mere pittance to Mother Nature herself. But no, no. Celeste will quickly return to the seedy seat of novelty, smack dab in front row, where things were a lot less pedestrian. You see, Ashlyn was a lady in Europe. That being so, it was only polite then to allow her beau, Damas, to have a gander at her prized and pretty pink possession, and unthinkable to lie concealed indelicately beneath some nondescript fabric of commodity. Ah, yes. Celeste will be most eager to relish all of these naughty delicts abroad in real time. After all that she has devoured at length before her computer screen, things were going to get real. Celeste will reach out, compelled by her quest to fully expose those secret treasures of abandon and concert, she hopes, with her longtime beau. She has lived for the date of this reunion, it seems, and a lustful remixing of the familiar, the widening of Ashlyn's complicit, dazzling, hazel-green eyes, 
her full breast thrusting forward out of habit as she embarks anew, weaving her delicious narrative to life. David will not know what hit him. Certainly, yes. Celeste has been yearning for this sort of gathering for much more than a fortnight. And now she wants to collect. Her attention will divert at moments upon the thought of Ashlyn's cheeks, which usually tend towards Rosie when she is just about to spill the raciest of spoils. The impish dives of Ashlyn's heart-shaped head as she lowers her gaze mid-sentence. The corners of her girlfriend's lips when they curl conspiratorially. Their interchange will commingle, as they often do, laced with sheepish smirks of self-censorship and bouts of sheer, bemused embarrassment. False modesty will peel away as Ashlyn's hushed giggles tell all. Together, they will find it increasingly troublesome to fight back the tears of merriment. Time and again, they may attempt to stifle and compress Ashlyn's naughty narrative at irregular intervals, shielding themselves from spectators' wandering eyes and wondering ears. And, of course, the waiter will come near, making his proverbial rounds, mostly mid-bite, just like clockwork, just to see if everything's all right. And it will be, and so very much more than all right. Celeste will encroach progressively as the night waxes on, building upon each succulent recantation of her muse. Celeste will catalog all manner of happenstance this evening, hoping to unleash her very own brand of sex magic. Just this once, but precisely where and when she should. She will attempt to widen the circle just for one, or, well, her party of one. Ah, the sweet, unassuming, ever-so-devoted David. Now... Ordinarily, Celeste would have had no difficulty casting forth a reasonable reproduction of her notorious pal's far-flung charisma, but her rehearsals were largely confined to solitary pursuit, mostly. Yet here, Celeste will assume certain studied positions on this once-upon-a-night. It is a given that she will start out well enough. She will advance with all the more purpose between the unforeseen hours of this endless night. Celeste's impending desire will mount bit by bit, eager to rejoice, relive, and suddenly give rise to a fait accompli. She races full speed ahead without regard for what could have otherwise resulted from certain derisive acts of jamais vu. Celeste will hasten to the destiny which stirs so immutably within, in spite of herself. By definition, Celeste had plenty of, well, practice gleaned from that steady stream of salacious digest, awash with the magnetic agony, ecstasy, and octane-laden discourse which spawns over easy from Randy Wildchild, Ashland. Celeste has been au courant for such a very long time. More often than not, perhaps, this feverish intoxication could have topped off 
occasioning itself to die a warm, slow, heady little death. Until this one night, her fantasies would have remained burrowed within the exclusive domain of private life, slipping through solely during hidden, unspecified stretches of time, shrouded within and beneath her stark white bedroom linen, finding their welcome respite peacefully atop Celeste's personal pleasure chamber. Normally, she would have flicked it out, pressing persistently with her tiny, finely tuned digits until she stopped. However, this time around, not so much. On this other day or night, something else will have come to pass instead, and rather remarkably so. And all because, and perhaps only because, at the culmination of this very grand soirée and pleasure-filled reconnaissance, things really won't seem all that different. Not at first. And yet, after all this, somehow it all must cease to be. Because Celeste will wake up dead. Now that's better, baby. Why don't we sing a song to help pass the time? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Depois de tarde, 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 dep
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.